Fintech Chatter Podcast, brought to you by Tier 1 People, the leaders in executive search for fintech ventures. Hello and welcome to Fintech Chatter, the show where I connect with fintech leaders for a bit of a chat. But tonight, I'm not connecting with one fintech leader, but I've got a room full of them. As we have a review of 2023, and I'm also joined by three special guests, Patrick Coglin, the CEO of Credit I Watch, Greg Marshall, CEO of Prosper, and Sebastian Watkins, the CEO of Lendy Group. But first of all, thanks everybody for turning up tonight. It's a time of the year where we're literally limbing to the finish line. I've been saying this now for the last four years, but it it seems every year is a challenge. Um, And 2023 is perhaps in fintech been the most challenging year yet. Certainly when I, uh, I look at the guests that we've had on the show this year, there's been some amazing stories of resilience, um, amazing stories of capital raise, amazing stories of product innovation, and amazing stories of people just really overcoming so many challenges and what feel like insurmountable challenges and still being here. So look, I just want to honor everybody in this room tonight that we're still standing, we're still turning up, and we're still giving it our best. So 2023 was also, I guess, the unofficial 10th birthday of FinTech in Oz. Um, And I thought it was really appropriate to invite some of the early innovators, Prosper, Lendy, and Creditor Watch to come along and share their insights for the year ahead. Normally, what I do at this time of year is I invite Ben Ford and plus one of that. And uh, we, I would say, Ben, talk utter bullshit and make wild predictions and get all hyped up about Web3 or AI. So this year, it's going to be something very different, a lot more qualitative and quantitative than we've offered up previously. I was going to start where you should start, which was the first episode of 2023. But unfortunately, the guest has been unable to make it. But I want to give a quick shout out anyway, because I think that the episode with Demir Kuka from, from BASIC really set the tone for for what 2023 has been. And I term it a year of the haves and have-nots, almost a tale of two fintechs. And so for those businesses that were able to raise capital, um, it's been, a you know, I think a, a tough year, but still a, a good year. For those that haven't, it's been a real slog. And I think that really was the... the one of the key kind of themes that we've seen throughout the podcast in 2023. Um, Demir was, I felt at the time, a little bit unreasonably upbeat. And it turns out there was a good reason why, because about three weeks later, they announced that it had been acquired by Kuskal. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it was then you know, that I kind of took Demir's kind of upbeatness with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But the year actually got off to a really good start. We had actually a, a Series A capital raise of data mesh of around about 30 million. Henry, the, the Kiwi accounting software, 
they announced the Series B again of around about 30 million. And so it looked like it was a really, really great, getting off to, to what would be a really great year. Um, I remember this day vividly. I was recording a podcast, and it was the day that Silicon Valley Bank crashed in early March. And I was getting serious PTSD from um, the GFC. And I was getting some kind of serious Lehman vibes with the, the Silicon Valley Bank crash. Um, I spent had a weekend where I was getting frantic calls from clients, frantic calls from talent, and people you know, really, really concerned about what happened. And that really was a catalyst for, I think, what turned out to be a pretty tough six months. Um, one of the themes that I wanted to talk about was really that six months and the, the resilience that we got to see through, through the industry. Um, and nobody, to me, really epitomized that resilience than Dan Canazaro from Parpera. Um, Dan, can you come up? Because I, I really want to share your story. So first of all, do you want to tell us a little bit about Parpera? Sure. And thank you very much. I didn't expect this. But um, yeah, so I'm Dan Canizara. I'm the founder and CEO of Papera. We exist to make business easier for people. Um, we do that by providing them with access to a business bank account, a debit card, invoicing. And since we started now, tax solutions as well and um, a savings account and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, what Dex is referring to is, I guess, last year we, um, well, we launched Australia's first banking as a service enabled fintech in October 21. And just as we were in full launch and, and growing last year, Vault Bank failed. Um, and we needed to recover. We spent, we had awesome support from the fintech community, so thank you and thank you, Dexter, for being a huge supporter along the way. And we spent the last, well, 18 months, I guess, but uh, from mid-year last year to mid-year this year, rebuilding on Wise as our platform partner and relaunched um, in July this year and now have a couple of hundred businesses back on the platform and doing really well. Now, first of all, awesome, Dan. Um, you've also done that with, you know, on the sniff of an oily rag. And I've, I don't think I've ever seen a founder make cents and dollars stretch out as, long, as far and as long as you have. How on earth have you done it and, you know, kind of kept going? Um, so we've raised $3.7 million in about that many years. And uh, the last million of that was in June this year. Um, we spent a million dollars building the first iteration of the platform, another million dollars building the second iteration. And, um, you know, we've got just about that much left at the moment. So um, we just have a really small team. We're lean. Uh, we have really good solution partners. And um, we try to do as much as possible with as little as we have. Wise came to the, the rescue um, with their platform. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that partnership and how it's going? Uh, that partnership came about through a long working relationship we had with them from the start. And um, when Vault collapsed and we were looking for a new partner, they actually sat down the corridor from us in WeWork in Martin Place. And it was a logical partnership, which we extended to then build out to, uh, we, we'll soon have multi-currency accounts and international payments as well. And we can use them for multiple markets. And uh, what you got planned for next year? So if all goes to plan, next year will be another big year for Papera. You'll see that we'll do more beyond the banking layer. Uh, so we already do a lot there, but what we're seeing from our members is that they find a lot of value in solving their pain points across the value chain of building a business. Uh, so can't share too much, but there'll be a, a lot more around serving businesses with more than just the banking. Final question from me. What's your big prediction for 2024? 
I've got three. Uh, so one is that I believe 2024 is the year we'll see the next wave of fintech in Australia. So I think we will see a recovery. Um, I think it will be the year of B2B still. I think business to consumer is still going to be challenging. Uh, for the unit economics to work, I think it's still going to be business-led, the recovery. And, um, and AI is a feature, not a solution. Brilliant, Dan. Look, congrats again on an amazing job. And look, I think everybody in the room and everybody in the industry has a lot of respect for how you've just stuck in and, and dug in and made it work. Now, hot on the heels of the, the WISE platform, um, I was also introduced to a person who I call Australia's best kept fintech secret. And on the show, and I think this was maybe a few months back, um, I met Sharon Now of ProSpend, and I was totally blown away by the business that she's built and her story. Sharon, do you want to come up and tell people a little bit about who ProSpend are and a little bit about your, your journey? So I'm Sharon from ProSpend. We're a business spend management platform. Um, yes, probably the best kept secret <laughs> in the fintech industry. Um, been doing it since 2016, started off as a product called Expense Manager. So my vision was to... Um, uh, make it easier for companies to solve that pain point of employee credit card reconciliation and um, employee reimbursements. Um, and then not long after that, I thought we could automate invoices, another really nasty pain point that businesses had. So we uh, now bring in um, invoices and we automate that and digitise it and set up workflows and and then um, we pushed that into the ERP. And then I thought, you know what, there's no really easy purchase order system out there for companies. Um, again, um, you know, purchase orders is like if you're in spend management, purchase orders is kind of a holy grail. Um, you know, ask to spend the money before it happens. Um, there wasn't anything out there, so we built a purchase order uh, module which allowed people to, out, to go out and, and uh, issue purchase orders on their mobile world. Um, and then I thought, you know what, um, what about budgets? You know, budgets are a uh, often Excel spreadsheet that's sitting on somebody's um, desktop and nobody knows what that budget is. So we now display budgets at the user uh, point. So anybody that wants to spend money or commit to it or approve it actually sees the budgets swiping across in front of them in real time. Uh, then we decide to do travel reconciliation. That's another big pain point. Travel spend, it's huge. It's millions of dollars that companies spend on travel. Um, and uh, the latest pain point that we decided to solve was um, payments. So, you know, issuing virtual cards. Uh, it's, a, it's a big issue for me because I think in 2023, we shouldn't be asking for people to be spending their own money. Um, and then asking for the money to be repaid. And if you can issue them virtual cards, they've got that money in their fingertips. Um, and we are next to launch uh, payments, so allowing our customers to be able to literally pay their invoices out of the platform. So it's been a journey. It's been a, um, a, uh, an evolving platform of uh, really solving all the pain points that, that CFOs have with their spend management. So I like to say we're the CFO's best friend. I also 
I think the headline that I had in the podcast was you breaking stereotypes. Um, no CTO, co-founder, and you're not from a tech background. I think I'm right in remembering your very first customer was a little company called KFC. And you basically just pounded the pavements and went and got clients and bootstrapped the business. Yeah, we did. We're a bootstrap company. Um, and uh, we did do that. We uh, just went out to the market and uh, very fortunate that we got an introduction to KFC and all power to them. They literally took a leap of faith on me um, and it was just me. Um, but uh, honestly, the, the, the product was game changing. So um, it, it just sold itself, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and then, yeah, we just pounded the pavements and, and got more customers to come on and, and then the traction followed after that. So if there's one message I can give you, <laughs> right product market <laughs> fit is, uh, and then execution is probably the two key points, yeah. When you kind of look back over the years, you know, what would you say has been the, the biggest challenge for you and how has it set you up to get through this period that we've gone through? Um, so I guess as a bootstrap company, um, it's always challenging with cash flow. You know, cash flow is top of mind absolutely all the time, all the time. Um, but I'm happy that we took that path. And it be, I did go out to the VC market. I went out to the VC market in 2019. Nobody wanted to lend us money. They, <laughs> they literally could not see how a local company could compete against a global competitor, which is actually very lame, to be honest with you, of the VC market. I hope there's no VCs in the room. But um, uh, I still feel uh, a bit... You know, cranky about that because um, you know I think the VC market have a, uh, a, a a responsibility to invest in the local market. Um, so we had no choice but to to boost to bootstrap. Um, so now when I look back, I think you know what if I had got all that VC money? I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have gone mad with it. Um, so uh, the biggest challenge was really. Um, cash flow, cash flow, keeping lean, keeping mean. And I think that's, um, albeit it's hard at the moment for anybody that's out there that is reliant on VC money, um, it's maybe a good correction, if I can be really politically incorrect about that, that we need to get back to profitability um, and, um, and uh, making sure we're growing, growing well Final question from me. What's your big prediction for 2024? And unlike Daniel, I don't want three. <laughs> it's a good opportunity to have a really good reset of basic principles of how to do business. I think that's where we should try and think about 2024. There's lots of opportunities, so many opportunities in the fintech industry. But let's get back to some basics. Sharon, congrats on a great year and thanks for your time. So I'm a sucker for a bootstrap story. Um, the other thing that I'm really passionate about is talent and the next generation of talent and the next generation of founders. And our next guest, um, I think, you know, epitomized everything that I love about this industry. And that's Julian Fayad from Loan Options. Julian.
So we got to meet, I think, in October this year, um, Simon Lee from Petona introduced us because he knows I'm a sucker for a good bootstrap story. Look, do you want to tell people a little bit about loan options, how you got the business off the ground, and also you got some great news to share? Thank you very much. Yeah, so uh, launched the business in uh, on August 1st, 2020, so we're a bit over three years uh, going on now. Uh, but I'd really been working on the proof of concept since 2017. You know, when I left school, I studied web and app development, and then I landed in finance totally accidentally. And then I sp- spent the last 12 years in asset finance. I'm, I'm 31 now. And uh, so when I launched Loan Options, uh, we were really trying to solve the, uh, a lot of problems with the way that finance was being accessed, specifically on non-property lending. So cars, equipment, boats, business loans, um, leisure personal loans and you know in order to get a quote you would actually have to you know um, give all your information and then they'll come back to you and it seemed like if you were uh, engaging a plumber or, or an electrician they would give you a quote first and then you would decide if you wanted to proceed this seemed very backwards so we wanted to change that and the industry is not necessarily the fastest to, ad- to adopt technologies lenders and banks have a lot of legacy tech of their own so really, we, we leaned into a lot of the great fintechs that were um, uh, coming out, you know, some of them in the room, Prosper, and um, great technology services like Credit to Watch to connect to third-party bureaus. And um, yeah, so essentially, Loan Options AI is an AI-powered loan marketplace. We connect to 75 banks and lenders' credit policies. We've reverse-engineered them because they don't give you their credit policies. Um, and so in real time, as the client's applying for alone, they're putting in their information, the results that they are seeing are results they actually qualify for and are eligible for. So that's the kind of the short story. But we just launched uh, Loan Options 3.0, our latest version of the technology. And the vision for the business was always to make applying for a loan as easy and and transparent as checking out on an e-commerce store. So if you think about the few clicks that you have to do on a Shopify store, for example, we wanted to make applying for a loan Uh, that easy and give people who maybe don't necessarily have a finance degree access to the most competitive offers. So what we did was um, we connected um, up to a bunch of third-party services. We also built a whole bunch of technology that hadn't been done before, industry-first stuff. So now when a client wants to apply for, let's say, a personal loan, they go onto our site, they tell us how much they want to borrow, they upload their driver's license, they consent, they connect their bank account, and 80 to 90% of the information is pre-filled because we use the driver's license and we built OCR technology to read and pre-fill that data. Then we use the credit file information. Uh, we extract that and pre-fill their data, liabilities, previous address history, previous employment history, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, of course, the income and expenses from their bank statements. So um, the way that we designed the technology was to be white-label friendly. So. We could embed this on any partner site and we've you know, um, created hundreds and hundreds of partnerships with our technology embedded. So, yeah. When it comes to, to I guess, funding, you know, what, what has been the approach you know, to help you kind of in this next phase of the business? Yeah, look, uh, it's a bootstrap business and um, you know, we were revenue positive. Because uh, I've been doing it for a while, I already had a network. I already had been building the proof of concept. So um, pretty much first month we made profit. Now, we haven't made profit every month, but 
the business overall is is growing really fast. Last financial year, we grew 300% year on year. But yeah, this, the the origin story of the business is a good one. It hasn't all been hasn't been all sunshines and rainbows for sure. Really high levels of anxiety, bootstrapping a fintech. Um, uh, it's it's certainly not easy, and you know a lot of people to 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 be that you're responsible for. Um, so it was about making really responsible decisions, not trying to grow too fast, not trying to bite off more than we could chew, and focusing on technology. It really, the way that we prioritized what we built was what's going to make us money and what's going to save us money by giving us efficiency. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe maybe in the next twelve months we'll, we'll raise some capital and, and really go to the next level. So. And finally, what's your big prediction for 2024? Yeah, it's a hard one. I, I, I tend to agree. I think there's going to be a little bit more pain, um, businesses recovering. If I had to just say one thing, though, I would say that next year is going to be the year where um, businesses should leverage partnerships within the same ecosystem. So uh, find businesses that um, maybe don't have a direct, um, maybe they're not a direct competitor, but have similar sort of um, verticals and find businesses that have similar values to you and and find find ways to partner and uh, grow each other's businesses so awesome thanks julian congrats somebody commented on the kind of eclectic nature of the the crowd that we've got tonight and the kind of uh, i guess different streams of fintech that are here in the room um, and that's intentional, very much for the reasons that Julian said. I, I also agree with him that as an ecosystem, perhaps, you know, we've been so fixated on our solution being the only solution, and we've gone off onto these tangents like RegTech, InsureTech, FinTech, and everybody's working in isolation. And I agree that I think actually the, the, the future of this industry is everybody working together um, I've got Sam here who said, why you got me on the show? I'm not a fintech. Um, but, you know, the, the stuff that Sam does in AI, all of this stuff is just highly relevant. And I think we're going to see, you know, I'd agree with Julian on that. I think next year we're going to see some coming together and brilliant minds coming together. And I hope tonight there's maybe some introductions that, that happen where we see some fruitful things happen in 2024. Um one of the, the identities that Australia has clung to has been this notion that for international businesses, Australia is the launch pad into Asia. Um, we've done a fantastic job in the last four or five years of attracting some high-profile fintech brands into the market. Unfortunately, this year, we've seen a number of high-profile brands leave. Um, and as you know, approximately 30 to 40% of my business is actually helping international businesses launch in uh, Australia. It was a, a, a huge concern for me. Um, but it seems that the, the concern was a little bit unfounded and we've seen a bit of an emergence in businesses looking again at Australia. And my next guest is from a business called Primer who they launched in the region, I think just earlier this year or mid this year, um, just recently announced something pretty huge. Um, Kevin Lee, he's the head of partnerships for APAC. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about Primer, Kevin? Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much for having me, Dexter. Uh, so Primer is a global payment uh, infrastructure. Uh, as Dexter mentioned, we've very recently entered into the Australian market. Uh, we're working with 
tier one fintechs in this market, such as your Zips and your Maneuvers, and we allow them or we provide them a, a payment infrastructure to connect into best in class uh, payment technology. So maybe a, a new PSP or acquirer, or maybe it's a fraud provider or anything else uh, within their uh, e-commerce ecosystem. Um, you had some big news, a huge announcement recently that came as a bit of a shock, I think, even to you. Yeah, we had some pretty exciting news. And uh, I know you are mentioning earlier that this year has been tough for a lot of fintechs in the room. Um, we're feel feeling very fortunate that uh, I think literally a, a month ago, we announced a, a funding round from Tencent. Uh, it's undisclosed, but it, I can guarantee you it's, it's more than their name suggests. Um, so this is to, to fuel our growth into not only Australia, but, but Asia more broadly. Uh, so we're backed by tier one venture capitalists globally. But what we realize we're missing is, is a cornerstone investor in, in Asia. So we're really hoping that this, uh, the investment from Tencent, uh, we can double down in, into Asia more broadly. Um, that notion of Australia being the launch pad into Asia, is, is that something that, that Primer believes? Yeah, Primer's been a, a global company from day one. Our founders founded Primer uh, at the start of the pandemic, and they recognized that to attract the best talent, they needed a, a fully remote organization. Uh, so we've been, as I said, global from day one. Uh, we've got customers globally, and uh, I think we, well, we, do, we do need to service them. We need, need to have boots on the ground. And uh, as we can see in the room, Australia has a very vibrant uh, fintech ecosystem. And it's the perfect launch pad to double down uh, our growth in, into APAC more broadly. Fantastic. And um, 2024 prediction? Yeah, 2024 prediction, uh, just to riff off what uh, Julian said earlier, I think uh, 2024, uh, a lot of people, uh, or at least as we see it, it will be the year of efficiency. And uh, the fintechs that succeed are going to leverage their most efficient growth channels. And for us at Primer, that, that is 100% uh, our, our partnership channel. So doubling down on, on partnerships, not only within the payment ecosystem, but um, the broader uh, commerce uh, ecosystem globally as well. Things really started to, I think, pick up and, and look a lot brighter around about September of this year. Um, some of the recent guests that we've had on the podcast, Rich Data Company, uh, recently just announced, a, I think, a 28 million Series B raise. Last week, we had Honey Insurance on the show. They're going to make a huge announcement early next year. But perhaps the biggest piece of news um, was a record seed round. Kind of a little bit of a cheat because I think it was actually happened 2022, but the announcement was made in 2023. This was actually also almost downloaded and listened to episode of the year by three times more than any other podcast. So it's huge. The, the interest in this business has been huge as well. Um, unfortunately, Mark and Di, the co-founders of Constantinople, can't be with us tonight. But Ned's here to kind of have a few words. Ned, do you want to introduce yourself and Constantinople? Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm Ned, notably not Mac. Uh, that's a test to see who's listened to the podcast. Uh, slightly more hair, but less wisdom, unfortunately. Um, so I work at Constantinople, look, work in corporate development, look after fundraising, but you know the core of the business is a software and operating platform for banks. What we aim to do is provide the end-to-end -end infrastructure that you need to run a bank in its entirety, as well as a layer of automation software on top. Basically, we're hoping to abstract the 
back-end commoditized complexities of banking and let banks do what they're really good at and what they really want to do, which is you know, managing treasury risk and then also uh, helping their customers. I think when I recorded the podcast, you were 40 people. How many are you now? We are, I'd say, judging by the intros this week, at about 75, 76, um, and hoping to be at uh, probably, I don't know, 120 by first half next year. And uh, big 2024 prediction from you? Oh, it's got to be the, uh, the year of the mutual bank, I think, um, you know, pushing the bounds of technology and uh, delivering a world-class customer experience and looking after their members in what could be a tough year, I think. Well, we're, we're coming to a, a wrap of my part before I hand you over to Pat. Um, my highlight of the year, look, if for me, it's, it's always, it always comes back to the people. And I consider myself to be very, very privileged to be able to share these stories, these people, their achievements. And I, I regular, regularly say, you know, within this space, we've got ordinary people doing some extraordinary things. And um, one of the, the, the great things that I take from this is just the inspiration that I get from every podcast, the learning that I get from every discussion. And most importantly, it's the friendships that, are, that I've made through, through this. Um, no more so than this year where I think you know, everybody's found sometime it's been, it's been tough going. And to be that person that people reach out to or on the other side, have people reach out to me and ask, hey, am I okay? Um, it's probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever had in my life. Um, I think there's two things that have, except my, my family and my wife, that have really made a massive impact on my life. One was moving to Australia, and then the second is being part of this community. So I just want to say to you all, I couldn't think of a better way and a better time of year to spend with family and friends and just awesome people like yourself. So, look, thanks very much for your support this year. I'm going to pass you on now to Pat who's going to give you a bit of a rundown with Greg Moshel from Prosper and Sebastian Watkins from Lendy Group. All right. We're going to keep this fairly high level and fun. I think, look, it's definitely been a tough year. Um, uh, Creditor Watch is certainly at the forefront of capturing, you know, a huge amount of commercial data to understand how businesses um, are faring at the moment and, and what we expect to see in the next 12 months. We put out a monthly business risk index. Um, I've, I've spoken about it at large, particularly since COVID first um, first hit about, you know, coming insolvency um, Armageddon and, you know, I missed it by about two and a half years. But fortunately, journalists don't often go back in history and, and have a look at who got it wrong and they still ask for our opinion every month, which is, which is great. Um, but we, we certainly know that 2023 has been tough, but I think it's always important to look for, for the green shoots and, and not just um, be too negative. It's something that uh, Greg on my right here always gives me a hard time about because otherwise, um, yeah, it, it can be a little bit depressing. So we're going to be a little bit upbeat and, and happy about it. Despite that, what we are seeing is a significant increase in insolvencies. Um, and we expect that to continue. Um, we're probably, you know, 15, 20% above pre-COVID norms. So while there has been a big jump more recently in the last, you know, 12 months, 
Uh, don't just compare it or don't just read articles that say, oh, it's up 50%, you know, on last year. You have to go back to 2018, 2019, even, even the long-term run pre-COVID. So um, 20, 20 to 30% is where we probably see it peaking. Um, of course, the, the big caveat asterisk uh, there will be um, whether there's a, another rate rise. And I think, you know, everyone, um, even the, the best economists in, in Australia, wouldn't, wouldn't bet on no more rate rises. Uh, we've seen, you know, widespread belief that we were, we were at the top of the, uh, the, the, the cash rate and, and then two weeks later we saw another increase in, in November. So it is, it is bloody tough out there. There's a lot of data that's coming in both from a, you know, a macroeconomic perspective and, and, and more granular in the data that we're seeing. We're, we're plugged into the, the, the payment system or the receivable systems so we can see the turnover of thousands and thousands of businesses around Australia. We can then see all the invoices and, and effectively how their, their debtors are paying them and that turns into obviously hundreds of thousands of, of businesses that, that we get a really good understanding of are they paying their bills on time? Has that changed over the last 12 months, et cetera, et cetera? So my, my sort of, or our prediction based on the data that we've got coming in, and, and that's everything you can see on that fabulous uh, banner to my right, your left, um, is that it's, it's certainly going to be a tough 2024, but there's a firm belief that by the time we get to the middle of the year, come June, July, we'll have really good clarity as to when that pain will end and when it will start to get easier. And I think that's a really key horizon. We, we look at it in two key horizons. The first one being um, certainty that rate rises have, have stopped and I don't think the RBA will ever provide any sort of um, certainty ever again, um, ever, as we, as we, we know that they, they've made that misstep once. Um, so we'll, we'll get that obviously through, through the trusted media and then what we'll see is as a second horizon is um, when that rate cut will come. And I think that will give um, businesses the confidence to start hiring again. It will give businesses the confidence to start investing in technology. It will give businesses um, the confidence to start taking on or increasing um, any debt that they have as well, which, which all of those three key things affect, I would suggest every single person within um, within this room now. So so I think, yeah, my prediction at this stage is come, come June, July, end of financial year, um, we'll, we'll have a little bit more certainty as to, to when we'll start to see um, the, the green shoots coming through and that will provide a huge amount of confidence. Similar to what we saw back in 2021 when um, most of the East or the East Coast was all in extended lockdown and, and businesses tread water. Uh, small businesses especially are, are in a super position to um, be somewhat of um, a hedgehog right? They've wrapped themselves up. There's a lot of pain around them, but they're not feeling it on the inside because they've got protections. They've invested in technology and efficiency and, and, they're, and they're, they're, they're able to perform or, or tread water or survive is probably the better word um, for, for a better day. And I think, you know, Aussie businesses are extremely resilient and a, a, a downturn is, is, is far better um, than, than a shutdown um, and, and I think those days are confidently, we'll say, behind us, which is great. So we should all take that confidence um, from, from those wise words and uh, 
the data that we're seeing and now we're going to get some actual experts to talk about what they're seeing as well in the uh, in the industry. So I won't go on anymore. I'm going to pass to to Greg and I'm I'm going to get some insights from him first just to stay on the on the business side of things. No disrespect. Um, and then, of course, we'll get Sebastian to come in as well. So, Greg, obviously, in the small business space, really keen to see and understand what you guys are, are feeling out there and what small businesses are feeling. Pat, this is a bit strange for me because uh, we've worked with Credit to Watch for seven seven years now? Longer. Longer, yeah, yeah it's longer. longer. Ten, I reckon ten. Ten years, yeah, probably. So, uh, we, 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 I guess we had a fintech before fintech was a word, Dexter. Yeah. It's ten years in, so... Uh, Remember trying to explain that to people, and, and Credit Watch is a great source of insights um, for us. So it's funny trying to give insights to Pat, but uh, that's the it, plug, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. Um, no, I think I think what we, what we're seeing is you know I think there's just been a significant amount of change in the world in general, and we've seen that uh, through you know it started in 2020 when we went through um, you know a health crisis that turned into an economic challenge, which turned into um, you know a, a whole different way of, of working where people were working from home and. Just that disruption has made things really interesting. So for us at Prosper, for instance, you know, we actually use a lot of data to understand, you know, what a small, a good small business looks like. We understand their transactional history. Their, um, we rely on on using the past in order to predict the future. And when you're in very uncertain times, I think that gets really, really challenging. And you've got to start using more kind of macro views. So we have to have, you know, significantly more of a, a view of the economy than we've had historically. Um, in the sense that when we started 12 years ago, that was kind of the start of, of cheap money. And every year we used to, to you know, get into work and I'd be able to keep dropping rates and I thought that was normal for about nine years. And then, you know, you start realising, um, you know, after there was that very large injection uh, around COVID, um, what we actually saw was, you know, significant inflation. And, and that becomes very real. And what that meant was we saw an absolute boom uh, for our customers in, in 2021 uh, which was 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 very exciting, uh, but what that can also mean is if that boom isn't coming with profitability, uh, your revenue is growing really quickly, but often your costs were growing with it. So what we've seen in 2023 is, you know, we saw I think it was 11 rate rises in 12 months. We, we're definitely starting to see that become real for for the small businesses and the small business economy, and people are starting to to rationalise their business off the back of that. So when we do our research, um, we work with a group called YouGov. Uh, when we look at what, what are the, the main concerns that small businesses have, around 58% of them say rising costs in goods and services, around 36% of them um, are saying customers are spending a little bit less. So, you know, it still is that, that, that kind of higher cost and that inflationary pressure that's causing more pressure on our, on our small businesses. Uh, I want to reiterate what Pat said. It's amazing how resilient small businesses are. And if you ask me, I think the economy's held up better than, than I, I certainly would have expected we're also seeing your unemployment at, at record lows. So, um, you know, innovation that's coming out is still amazing. Uh, we're still seeing, you know, people are still looking for growth and investment. That is still a mentality. Um, there definitely is a focus on profitability and some of the, the access to options has reduced, which, again, you know, can also be an opportunity for us when we, we serve our customers in the right way. So I think just 2023 has been um, a continued year of change, um, and I think it's been three years of a lot of change. So I think... Uh, as we get to the end of the year, I think probably a few tired faces um, around because, you know, it's not just this has been a long year. It's been kind of a pretty wild three years, in, in my opinion. And are there any specific industries that you see opportunity in? So we're obviously looking at industry risk information on a, on a regular basis. Um, you know, retail, hospitality, obviously discretionary, uh, linked to discretionary spend. 
um, and, and naturally hurting more. I think construction's been through its pain. I, I get, we get the sense that they're probably at, at or close to their peak. Um, we've seen, you know, supply chains get softened. We've seen um, still challenges with, with labour shortages, but um, price is starting to normalise. Yes. Any, any specific industry uh, commentary? Yeah, so definitely, um, you know, we talk about building and trade, but particularly construction. Uh, you know, there was two challenges in that area. One was, you know, contagion risk where you had, you know, larger groups that fell over and then just not being able to pay subbies and, and things like that. And that absolutely had an effect on, on just the general cash flow. I think the bigger challenge was um, just very high levels of growth and people were doing fixed cost contracts in the beginning and no one could have predicted how quickly their cost of goods, you know, things like, timber or other materials were going to grow. And so what we did see was, unfortunately, um, a lot of companies that felt they were doing really well, that were, were going through an absolute boom, and when things have turned around, um, their ability to cut costs as quickly as they could, um, had revenue drop, just wasn't there. So we definitely saw that in building trade. Um, you know, surprisingly, I think retail, from what we've seen, has held up far better than I would have thought. Um, you know, consumer spending still actually seems reasonably good, and considering how much you know, we've seen mortgages increase and, and you, know, you know, we talked about that. Well, I'll, I'll ask Sebastian actually is the expert on that, but there was a lot of talk in the mortgage cliff. He'd have a lot more, more experience on that, so I won't go too deeply into that. But, you know, that has been uh, an effect on consumer spend, but certainly from what we've seen, it hasn't been an absolute cliff, but it has been a weakening and it feels like greater when you actually realise it's coming off what were 2021 highs, whereas if you go back to kind of what people are doing versus years like 2019, um, I think that, that you'll see, you know, it's, it's probably the, they're now at kind of more normal levels compared to where they were at before uh, the very large boom. So uh, from an industry point of view, you know, absolutely we've seen, you know, even from, from things like hospitality, but again, you know, we've had uh, just changing demographics. So for instance, if you're a, a cafe that's in the city versus a cafe that's in the suburb, you've watched people return, um, you know, back into the suburbs. That's been a great boom for you. Now you're watching people return back to work to some extent. So there are actually quite a few different factors, not just economic. But again, overall, um, we are seeing that um, people are fairly resilient. Um, they are still looking for money for growth. People are still saying that next year they're thinking about ways to, to invest and still grow their business. So overall, I would say it's actually more positive than, than I would expect. But um, certainly um, uh, on the SME side, people are feeling that. That, that challenge, and I think uh, you've seen the, the better businesses or the businesses that moved quicker, um, particularly around cutting costs, are the ones that are doing better and, and are going to be well-placed for next year. That's a, that's a good point, and, and one that I'll sort of segue to you is um, what, what we've also seen is this retu- return to a normal sort of operating environment. We obviously existed in this um, synthetic environment of, of insolvency uh, protections, job keeper, job seeker, and it was, it was, it was you know, totally different to anything we've experienced before. So we've returned to this more normal environment, le- less so for, for the consumer, which I'm, no doubt you'll, you'll touch on. Um, but I think also we've, we've seen a, a concentration of resources and, and good quality people into good quality businesses as well. There were a lot of businesses out there that... Um, probably sh- shouldn't have been able to access capital in the, in the way that they did and, and, and were therefore able to then hire really good people and that, and that uh, diluted the, the ranks, particularly in, in fintech, particularly in technology. So, so we've seen um, a, a significant, you know, stabilisation in, in that space, but really keen to hear what we're seeing in, uh, in the mortgage world. 
Yeah, uh, thank you. So uh, for us, we're seeing we've had a really interesting two years. Um, we saw obviously record low money, which drove a refinance and a purchase boom. Uh, and then when we saw the rate rises up to 4.35, what we were seeing is a huge amount of natural uh, consumer activity around the rate rise events. What we've seen, though, as the, rate, as the rates have continued to rise up to 4.35, um, is that as the rates rise, the ability to service existing debt becomes harder. Uh, lenders, as you probably know, will put a serviceability buffer on a mortgage. Um, and so if you're trying to refinance your home loan today at, say, 6.5%, you're actually having to prove serviceability at 9.5%. And when you took out that loan, you were probably assessed with the buffer at a five and a half or a six percent. And so what we're seeing is that for new home buyers in that period, uh, as many as 40% should technically not be able to afford their mortgage now based on their declared uh, income and expenses at the time. Now, what do we do? We change our expense behaviour. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people go and take second jobs uh, or uh, you know, family units where there was one uh, income earner, now maybe have two. Um, and we're starting to see some concerning uh, behaviours around credit card debt as well. Um, we're seeing credit card balances that we're refinancing into mortgages, which is probably the, the most accurate data point that we can measure increase. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, it's harder to refinance. Um, as a result, mortgage volumes have dropped off about 9%. Uh, we are seeing an interesting uh, return to purchase uh, recently. Um, and I suspect what we're starting to see now at a lender level is that lenders are starting to work out, uh, well, if the credit's already in the system, uh, is it really appropriate to apply a 3% buffer to, you know, uh, the, the current interest rate environment? Uh, and there's some lenders are starting to get creative around that. So for us, we're starting to see themes of uh, perhaps if it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar refinance, you're not extending more credit, that lenders are starting to think about that differently. And that's, that's obviously good consumer outcomes. Um, but look, in to it's, it's been an, a really interesting 2023. Um, it's been a game of, uh, obviously, uh, pain for a lot of people. Um, but at the same time, I think, uh, as we just touched on before, Australians are fiercely loyal to their mortgage. So we haven't seen huge tick-ups in uh, things like 90-day arrears yet. And would you say that there's um, a big amount of support from APRA and lenders, particularly the, the, the bigger lenders, to help um, mortgage holders get through this this downturn, um, it's probably off, but, off, but, off the record. Yeah, Chatham House off rules, the record. I think I think even <laughs> you know, even some of the APRA commissioners would yes I'd, begrudgingly agree to it. Yes, I think I think some would. I think their public facing statement is that they're in fierce support of the three percent buffer. Yeah, I think you're seeing some lenders that are getting um, a little more creative uh, around that. I think that. What I would say is that we're not trying to solve this problem together. Um, you know, if you look at the, the place that, the space that we play in, sorry, which is mortgage broking, uh, about seven out of ten mortgages that are originated in Australia every month go through a mortgage broker. Um, so they're the, the predominant choice uh, for consumers when it comes to mortgage origination. Uh, you've then obviously got banks and APRA. And what I would say is that I don't feel like we're talking about it enough at, at the moment and that we're not collaborating on how we may be able to solve it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. What you've got is people stuck in credit contracts, as I said before, that technically can't afford them. So I worry about what that does for things like mental health and stress and certainly for first home buyers, um, singles or couples. 
you took out at home and you did all of your budgeting based on 2.5% and you probably did it on 55 which was your serviceability buffer. Um, and if you listen to the RBA, you were probably pretty comfortable in that assessment. Uh, and you're now paying 6.5% uh, um, in as much as 18 months. So I, I, I worry about the mental health impacts on that and what amplifies that issue is when you're stuck in that credit contract. So you actually can't do anything about it outside of trying to renegotiate your existing bank. I think that's a real problem. Yeah. Um, Greg, do you see the, the impact of mortgages in commercial loans? Well, for us, we see it in two ways because we're dealing with what we call the S of SME. So it's, um, you might even call it a micro business. And, you know, we have small business owners that have mortgages and they pay for their mortgages out of the earnings in their business. So, you know, of course, if you've got more pressure paying uh, your mortgage off, and as Sebastian pointed out, um, Australians do put their mortgage ahead of almost anything else. So that is going to actually put more pressure on your business because it's actually almost increasing your business expenses for a for a micro business. So we, we're definitely seeing that pressure there. I guess the, the second output is um, as it affects consumer spend, that's going to affect every single um, um, small business. So, you know, Australia is a consumer economy. Um, you know, most people have variable mortgages or moving on to a variable mortgage. So, you know, it's not like the US where we saw um, fixed rates and you've got 25 years and everyone just said, that's fine, I just won't sell my house. And, you know, that works pretty well for, for America. It's, it's harder for them to reduce inflation that way, but it's, it's great if you're a consumer who locked in 0% for 25 years, um, which is not the case here. So absolutely, we, we see it on both ends, um, both the pressure it's putting on the business owner themselves, as well as actually the pressure that's coming from reduced consumer spend into the business. So I guess the big prediction, what are we going to see rates uh, come down? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we try not to crystal ball too much. I personally think we'll see some, uh, some reprieve in the back end of next year. I think that um, we haven't seen the full effects of the fixed rate cliff yet. Uh, we're obviously seeing uh, significant reductions in savings balances, um, but we still have 20-odd, uh, 25% even uh, of consumers on fixed rates. Um, so, you know, um, plenty of people at our office are still paying 2.19%, um, which would be nice. I'm not, certainly not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we'll do so up until sort of halfway through this year. So I don't think we've, we've certainly haven't seen the full effects of that yet. But the bulk of that uh, rolled off sort of in the last six months of this year. So I suspect uh, it'll take a few months for that to wash through. And then um, I'm hoping that we see some reprieve in the back end of next year. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think APRA and the bank's approach to supporting uh, mortgage holders through this challenging period suggests that it's going to be shorter rather than longer. Um, all right. Greg, anything else to add there? If not, we might pass to Dexter to ask a few challenging questions. Yeah. First challenge is to uh, put the mic on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I guess, look, first one from, from me, Bass, is um, you mentioned there about the, the interest rate rises. Um, what, what kind of impact has that had on the, the, the broker network? And what I'm asking here is specifically around um, you, you guys have got a technology platform. It's best in breed. Um, I've been through a broker experience myself. Whilst it was fantastic, it wasn't the greatest digital experience. 
um, the the personal experience was. Given the you know the, the, there's obviously this is top of mind for people, and there's more work now to do. What have you seen feedback-wise from the broker network around technology and how that, what we can be doing to actually fix this or help this problem? Yeah, it's a good question. So mortgages have become very complex very quickly. They were always quite complex. And I think when you play in the broker space, you have 28 lenders. We have 28 lenders, 28 credit policies. Um, and within that, the bulk of those are still assessed by a human today. Uh, and so what you see is really high what we call uh, missing information requests, which is where a human assessor has looked for something and asked for a bit more information. Uh, and then when you double-click on that, what you see is that a large percentage, 25 30% of those missing information requests are actually requests that aren't on any form of um, policy document or, or uh, yeah, or policy document. So it becomes a bit of a guessing game and we've spent a fair bit of time building a rules engine around ingesting declines and MIRs and trying to understand when loans that fit a similar shape and feel uh, a surface through our system that it would look at where perhaps they've failed in the past, why they failed and how we could surface that insight to the broker. Um, But it is a really rapidly changing environment at the moment. So what I would say is that brokers generally, look, the Lendy business... um, is probably different to our Aussie business in terms of mindset. I'd say that our Aussie business has uh, probably a 50-50 split of of people that are sceptical that it may replace them one day and people that are embracing technology for what it is, which is ideally making them more efficient, um, automating away the repetitive administrative tasks uh, and trying to surface the right information at the right time to the right person. Um, It's a bit of a challenge at the moment. I think there's some... Uh, logical applications to some of the AI commentary. You know, that's something that we're staring at at the moment. Um, but what I would say is that I think there's a realisation now by brokers, certainly in our business and perhaps generally speaking more than ever, that technology will be the only way that we can continue to, to maintain our industry. Consumer expectations are changing significantly and I think that the day of a um, traditional experience, which is largely face-to-face and offline and off-platform, is probably short-lived. Uh, and certainly as we see the younger generation, the 35 to 45 starting to come into the market, I think that, that problem statement becomes amplified. Awesome. Greg, rather selfishly, um, <laughs> this question's coming from, <laughs> directly from me. You said something before that really resonated around small business owners having mortgages. I'm in that bracket. One of the biggest frustrations that I've got as a small business owner is that my life is so unnecessarily hard because of trying to integrate my personal finance with my business finance and tax and all all the other stuff that goes with it. CDR has kind of promised to be this thing. And I always feel that the better use case maybe is to start off with business rather than consumer. Do you ever see a day where Prosper and Lendy are combining forces to make my life <laughs> a lot easier? Well, thanks for the pitch. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, discuss we'll that afterwards. About that, yeah. And we've known the Lendy guys for, for ages. So. Um, I, think, I think we're, firstly, um, we love, you know, dealing with small business customers partly because it is such a like a an exciting challenging space to solve and I'm sure there's some other people in the room who deal in in kind of b2b as well and 
we 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 kind of say we're we're as close to B2C as a B2B business can be because you know we're we're dealing with you know micro businesses or small business owners and that 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 blurring of the line Dexter is, is enormous. You're absolutely right. The your your, your personal and your business are, are so closely related. So I mean, we actually think it's one of the reasons we have a business in itself. So banks have always really struggled with this. If you go into a bank, they'll either say, look, too hard basket will push you down the consumer path. So, you know, we started with small business lending and what people used to have before Prosper came along was you'd go to a bank and say, yeah, we're going to push you into a, a credit card. And that wasn't actually the thing that suited your needs. Or they would put you into the commercial team that said, look, if you need less than a million dollar loan, there's, there's no reason to come speak to us. So I think banks are the ones that have attempted um, to bring those things close together. But unfortunately, I think the SME is the group that's, that's kind of fallen through the cracks. What is super exciting, though, is SME expectations, I think, have started to merge with the consumer expectations. And I think the solutions that are meeting that are solutions that are, you know, close to or at least trying to, to emulate, you know, those beautiful stick experiences. And I think Apple was a big part of where that happened, where, you know, the iPhone became the business phone and the, the consumer phone. And people said, well, why can't, why can't we have these experiences across the board? So um, as, as you said, as data becomes more accessible, as... Um, you know, we, 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 we are able to kind of see a fuller picture of the customer. I, I absolutely think there's an opportunity to bring those things together. I think right now um, there is still a push to keep them somewhat separate, partly also because um, keeping – there is also a, an incentive to keep these things separate just for simplicity when you're doing, you know, taxes and things like that as well as, you know, if you're using a business loan for consumer purposes, again – that can be challenging. So I think there, there are things in the system that actually encourage it to be separated. But if you look at any small business owner, yourself yeah. included, it's a pain in the ass that's yeah. not required. So we, we want to just make what we can control as simple as possible. We're coming to a wrap. Um, I wanted to end things by actually honoring the three businesses that we've got up on stage right now. Um, three very enduring businesses as I mentioned at the beginning, oh, geez, Prosper was a fintech before the word was being used. First of all, what do you put that endurance down to, each of you? Um, and then second of all, what's got you excited about next year? And I'll start with you, Greg. Um, I, I, look, for me personally, I, I love what I do. So I've always been a small business owner prior to Prosper. This was my fourth business. So uh, you know, I just, I just, I'm really passionate and the purpose side of helping a small business owner. I know I've received debt in my past and it's changed my life. So having that ability to do that for others and uh, even someone I was speaking to earlier that we've, we've lent to them in this room. And that was, that's kind of really exciting. That's inspiring. And I think that can get you through a lot of the, the challenges that, that might prop up and happen in every um, single business. So for me, having that purpose, having that, that kind of meaning in what we do is, is, is really, really inspirational. And we also get to work with really, really good people. So we've got a great team. Um, we were able to, you know, um, build a, a really special culture. And I think that also just helps you endure. I think th- those two things would be my call out. Uh, predictions for 2024? Um, no, t- not a prediction. Oh, no. Sorry. We're, oh. we're, 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 what can we expect from Prosper in 24? Oh, from Prosper yeah. in 2024. Yeah, yeah great. <laughs> That's much easier than trying to predict 2024. Yeah. Thank you. Um, look, we're, we're um, fortunate that we're coming to the end of what was a very large replatform. So I don't know if anyone else in the room has been through that, but that was two years of really hard work and, 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 and significant costs. So uh, next year we can actually focus more on 
getting back to doing what we love, which is, you know, building great propositions and um, meeting customer and partner needs. So, uh, you know, just continually um, building out more uh, and better experiences, both in our origination flow and application flow for our customers and partners. Uh, we're looking at, you know, features and, and, and enhancements that we can keep adding, uh, as well as we've moved into um, an area of cash flow management. So we are starting to look at the transactional needs as well as the, the payment needs of our customers. So we've already um, um, launched a, a business transactional account. We're not a bank, but we do have a transactional account. We, we, we work with a, a third party on that. And we've got around 1,500 customers. We're looking to bring that into an overdraft and bring uh, financial management software um, as a layer on top of that. So that's bringing capital um, um, transactions and, and financial management software together as a big focus going into next year. Brilliant. And Patrick, what, what can we expect from Credit or Watch next year? So we, we actually went through our first formal long-term strategic planning session at the beginning or sort of May, June this year, um, which we, you know, we're 13... I don't years. think there are any consultants here, so you can be honest. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can tell you that I got one quote from a big-name consultant and it was, um, you could probably buy a house with it. <laughs> um, and then we got a, a, a much more affordable quote. It was actually a really painless process to go through um, and it's produced what I would say is a, a really easy to understand follow and now the challenge, of course, is, is execution. So um, I'm, I'm happy to say five months in, we're, we're ahead of target. Uh, we're, bringing, we're bringing forward our FY25 sort of headcount or half of it into, into sort of early uh, calendar year 25. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to continue to, to sort of execute on on the longer-term vision that, that we've put forward because historically Credit Watch has been a very uh, sales-focused organisation, sales-led. Um, we often would have blinkers on and you would say yes to every opportunity even though you're probably losing money on it. Anyone in, in, in technology's done that where you've, you've said yes and really in hindsight you probably should have done a business case. But, um, yeah, we're, we're doing a, a fantastic job of, of remaining focused on, on that and, and sticking core to, you know, what we currently do. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to just continuing to, to execute. We've got an amazing team. and Awesome. And, Bas, I'm not going to ask you the endurance question because I'm going to direct people to the awesome interview that I did with you and David <laughs> just, uh, I think, about eight weeks back, which is, yeah. if you haven't listened to it, origin story of, of Lendy with David Hyman, um, the CEO, and, and Sebastian. Um, and whilst I've got you, Greg, I uh, really want to do one with you and Bo as well, which I think would be an awesome, awesome story. But what can we expect from Lendy in 2024? Uh so we also have just come off the back of a major replatform and we uh, acquired the Aussie business. We knew that that came with a couple of years of, I wouldn't say distraction, but we had one core focus, one uh, uncompromising outcome, uh, and that was to replatform the what was the Lendy platform um, uh, for the Aussie business. So that's, that's taken two-ish years. Um, well, it didn't take two years, but from getting the keys to rolling the last broker on was about two years. Um, so we now, we're quite excited about uh, being able to repurpose all of that bandwidth into helping us realise our sort of five-year vision. Uh, what I would say is we're starting to turn our minds to not just the financial component of home ownership, 
uh, or home buying, um, but more the broader ecosystem. There's a number of components that sit within buying a house and owning a house that feel quite naturally uh, should be owned through the one experience. Um, Would that include spending every single weekend doing DIY? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so, look, we, we think that th- that's an interesting opportunity for us. At the moment, as far as mortgage broking goes, we obviously, um, we, we, you know, we, we're different to a traditional broker in that we're technology, uh, obviously technology first, uh, but human superpowered business. Um, we're branded proposition. Um, but we think that at the moment, as I said, we play the thin slice of the wedge and there's a lot more up the funnel that we should own or could own. Awesome. Well, we've run a little bit over time. Thank you, everybody. It's been fantastic to just share a podcast experience with you all live. Thanks very much for your insights. It's been awesome to have you all and you know, sharing this, I guess, what is fairly unique um, kind of data that you don't usually get. Um, thanks very much, guys, for coming along this evening. And thank you all for attending. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. If you haven't subscribed to the show, make sure you give us a follow. And if you're coming back, thanks for much for your support. It really does mean a lot. Until the next FinTech Chatter, we'll see you in 2024. FinTech Chatter is produced by Tier 1 People leaders in fintech executive search. We'll find world-class leadership talent to build world-class fintech ventures. And you can find us at tier1people.com.